Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Jim Shepard. He is the winner of the Penn New England Award, the Story Prize, and he has been a finalist for the National Book Award. His new novel is Phase Six, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And before we dive into your book, Jim, I've asked a form of this question to a lot of different writers over the past year, but I'm especially curious about your answer, given the content of your new book. How have you been doing this past year under the gaze of COVID-19, and how is it affecting how you are marketing this new novel, Phase Six? Um, Well, those are two very different questions. Um, You know, like everybody else, I'm bearing up under um, a a bizarrely um, artificial sense of time. Uh, You know, we're all feeling this sort of weird limbo sense of are we all just on hold until reality returns or is this the new reality kind of thing? And it's a little bizarre and that it's exactly what I tried to imagine when I started writing this novel before COVID broke out essentially. Um, So it was a little weird to sort of re-experience it and see what I got right and see what I got wrong. Um, That's very distinct from marketing it, which is thank God really not my issue. Um, you know, the uh, publishers at this point are, are somewhere between listless and despairing when it comes to how they're going to get their books out there. And um, I have exactly that same sort of attitude. So I'm probably better off left out of the mix for the most part. You know, I, I tend to believe um, that not that many people are going to engage what I've done anyway. And anybody who does is, is gravy for me, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jim. This novel, Phase Six, is the first novel I have read that has dealt specifically and explicitly with COVID-19. Um, I recognize the flaw in this question because you are an artist and you make the art that you make when you make it. So forgive me in advance, but do you feel like the reading public is ready for a post-COVID-19 pandemic novel? Yeah, you know, that's the question, right? I mean, what happens when you're a fiction writer, at least like me, is you sort of follow your own obsessions to some place that hope you, you hope won't at least bore the heck out of you. Um, and once you've done that um, to your own satisfaction, then you sort of look, look up and sort of say to yourself, well, is anybody else going to be interested in this? Um, and when I conceived of this book, um, I thought, well, people really do need to know that we are not ready for a pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, my editor was sort of like, yeah, I had literally just turned a book in. Um, and my, my editor was like, well, this is a little prescient. Mm-hmm. And, and Kanaf became a little panicked as to, you know, do we, send, do we get this out right away? Do we wait a year? What do we do? And I understood their dilemma because um, there really isn't much of an answer to that question, right? That, um, on the one hand, um, you would think, uh, well, what's more cogent as a subject for the reading public than uh, a pandemic at this point? On the other hand, you think, what's the last thing on earth people would want to read about, right? Um, what, one of the things that, that mitigated that for me a little bit was uh, the idea that this is actually, this was always conceived of as the pandemic that's going to be following this pandemic. In other words, this is the, the, the one I'm writing about is the one that's even more dire and, and we're, still, we're still not prepared for it. 
All right. Thank you, Jim. Uh, this novel, Phase 6, opens in Greenland, uh, and you give us sort of an origin of this outbreak that occurs in your novel, and we see it from about page five or six forward begin to spread very rapidly. Can you set the opening scene for our listeners, especially regarding how these pathogens are loosened upon the world? I can, yeah. In fact, that's sort of where the book came from. Um, I don't know if you remember, um, but about uh, 10 years or so ago, a boy, a 12-year-old boy died in Siberia of anthrax. Um, and the Russians went a little crazy because they hadn't had anthrax in the country in 100 years. And it turned out the boy had caught anthrax from a dead deer carcass that had been buried in the permafrost. Mm -hmm. um, it turns out that vir while viruses really can't survive in the cold and have to be, well, they can, but they, they sort of have to be actively revived when you pull them out of the permafrost. Uh, that's not true of bacteria. Um, bacteria can essentially reanimate um, as the permafrost warms. And as we've gone from um, a situation with climate change where every year a few inches of the permafrost uh, loosens up to now seven or eight or 10 feet, um, and we've started mining along the Greenland northern reaches and the Russian northern reaches in extreme um, volume, it just seems to me when I was reading about this, um, um, uh, not a matter of if, but of when, when these pathogens start to get out of the um, permafrost, essentially. Right now, our focus on the permafrost is all of the methane that it's releasing, and that's bad enough. Uh, but there are all sorts of pathogens that humanity is no longer ready to deal with that are trapped in that permafrost as well. Right. And continuing along these lines, this is the first time that I have thought about a virus, a pandemic, starting because someone has drilled into the earth to exploit its natural resources, even though um, the tagline in the novel, I believe, is that the drilling is being done to improve the environmental conditions. Um, <laughs> This catastrophe uh, that we've created for ourselves with global warming and such um, and these pathogens being released due to drilling, is this just simple, sci uh, simple science or is the earth fighting back here, fighting for its life, really? Well, that's a good question. You know, a lot of people have made the argument that the, probably the most virulent outbreak that the world has ever seen is humanity. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the eradication of species and that sort of thing. So if there were some kind of uh, collective hive mind to the planet, getting rid of human beings would be a really good first step uh, in terms of uh, healing the planet. Um, I don't know if we need to believe that to believe that um, one of the absolutely implacable aspects of modern science has been that as we penetrate areas of the world that were not meant to be penetrated, whether it's the very deepest parts of the African jungle or the, you know, the deeper areas of the permafrost, you're putting yourself back into contact with stuff you have no way of dealing with, essentially. Um, and what that means is that um, as, we, as our population just expands into every possible niche, we expose ourselves to every possible danger, essentially. Right. Thank you, Jim. Um, you have done 
a lot of research for this book along with your research assistant. And this is a topic we will return to after the break. But before we take a break, um, a pandemic within three generations was predicted by, I believe you write, 90% of polled epidemiologists. This was in a study published in 2006. Uh, regarding COVID-19 in this research you have done, why was this research by these uh, polled epidemiologists, why was this not taken seriously? In other words, why, in your opinion, were we not more prepared to handle this outbreak? Well, one of the lines in the novel uh, speaks directly to that. And one of the epidemiologists who's one of my characters says at one point, you know, when science runs into culture, science always loses, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, given that um, the state of our political uh, reality is that everybody is operating in the short term, um, anything that seems like it's prudent uh, long-term preventative stuff uh, simply doesn't carry much political weight. Um, and one of the things that's quite discouraging um, uh, when I started talking to microbiologists and epidemiologists was how little it seemed we'd learned from SARS, how little we'd learned from Ebola, uh, how much we, I mean, the science, we learned a lot, but the political realities uh, simply weren't changing. Um, and the assumption is always uh, that money should come first, which is in, has in some ways, as we've seen from in the COVID pandemic, absolutely crippled our ability to respond in terms of our um, health industry. Um, and as soon as you say something like, well, we should be uh, preparing for the next pandemic, you're talking about long-term planning that is going to get some politician into trouble, I think they think. And so essentially what they do is what most politicians are born to do, which is kick the can down the road um, and wait for somebody else to fix the problem. Um, now, it's the, that being said, there's still a big difference between saying I'm not going to improve things and like the Trump administration actively tearing things down. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. to, to, to give Obama's administration some credit, they actually tried to lay out. They couldn't really set too many more resources aside, but they tried to lay out a game plan for dealing with the next pandemic. And such was the um, contempt that the Trump administration had for all things Obama. They just threw that out. Uh, they just thought, well, if this is Obama's stuff, we don't want it, essentially. We'll, we'll start from zero, um, which might be a good uh, biography title for the Trump administration, you know, starting from zero. You know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that answer, Jim. Um, listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Jim Shepard. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Jim Shepard, author of Phase 6, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopf. But Jim, before the break, 
I alluded to the research you did as you were writing this novel. Can you tell us about your research regarding the CDC, people who work for the CDC, and what you learned and applied to phase six? Yeah, with anything, any kind of book like this, uh, what I'll do is uh, both do the book learning involved to bring myself from massively ignorant to just partially ignorant, and then start talking to actual people uh, who can let me know uh, what it is I don't know, I don't know kind of thing. Um, and also uh, with stuff like the CDC, when there's when the science is moving that fast, you're tending to read about stuff that's already out of uh, date. Um, whether you're dealing with the intelligence community or epidemiology or something like that, if you're reading a book from 2012, you're pretty close to dealing with stuff that no longer happens the way it says it's happening. So I really lucked out in that a, a friend of mine, uh, the science writer Elizabeth Colbert, um, happened to um, have researched uh, very successfully with uh, a, a man named Tom Friedan, who's the, an ex-head of the CDC. And so she put me in touch with him and he was sweet enough. This was, again, before COVID. So he had time on to do this sort of thing. He was sweet enough to say, sure, if, give me your premise and we'll talk about it. We'll sort of go through the kinds of uh, things that would be likely to happen. Um, and that um, combined with all the book learning helped a huge amount to uh, update things essentially. So when I'm researching a novel like this, I'm usually, again, uh, sort of dividing it between talking to people who are actually know what they're talking about and um, doing a lot of the work in the library so that I don't embarrass myself when I'm talking to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Right, thank you, Jim. One more question about your research and your acknowledgements. You think Sarah Towers, who, and I quote, provided a masterful on-the-fly seminar as to how you uh, might self-educate when it comes to social workers' engagement with troubled children, end quote. Can you tell us more about this, Jim, both about this seminar, why you needed it, and how you ended up using it when writing this novel? Sure. Um, you know, one of the uh, things that happens in the novel is the young boy who might well be the index patient and therefore of enormous help to um, the investigators is uh, traumatized enough that he really doesn't want to speak to anybody and just barely trusts one of the epidemiologists who saved him. Um, she then has to bring in somebody who's a little better trained than she is at dealing with traumatized children. Um, and while I've had a lot of experience with children, I haven't had that much experience with tra really traumatized children. And so it, it turns out that a, a good friend, Sarah Towers, is an MSW in Northampton, Massachusetts, and has been dealing with traumatized young people. And so one of the things, again, um, Amy Hempel, a writer friend of mine, someone once asked her, what's the most important thing uh, in, in terms of being a writer? And she said, having interesting friends. Um, and in this case, you know, it really helped me to be able to say to Sarah, listen, I'm, I need to know the kind of ways you would proceed if you were trying to work around a really traumatized child. And she said, well, here's how you would start to learn about that. And she gave me, you know, the kind of a beginning seminar in terms of a reading list that would get me on the right road. And when you're writing a novel like this, remember, you're only trying to construct an illusion. So, in the case of something like that, where that's not really the central subject of the novel, what I'm looking for is a basic roadmap and some uh, persuasive details. I'm not really looking to educate myself in that comprehensive a way, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Thank you, Jim. Um, listeners, as an aside, Amy Hempel, who is also one of my favorite writers, was on this program maybe two years ago. You can find that episode in our archives when she was speaking about her last short story collection. It was a really great interview. Um, Jim, let's talk about this young person, Alec. There is a heartbreaking scene when Alec watches his grandparents die, uh, his grandparents being his primary caregivers. And after they pass away, he takes their hands and lies on top of them to keep them warm, and he falls asleep. Uh, this isn't the only time that we see a character or characters pass away, and then the reaction is to embrace them or protect their dead bodies. Can you tell us about this type of reaction, why these characters become so protective and worrisome over these uh, dead bodies of their loved ones repeatedly? Is it just shock? Um, at this point in the story with Alec and his grandparents, no one knows why people are dying. By the way, this is very early in the novel. It's not a spoiler, uh, though I believe <laughs> Alec suspects why people are dying. <laughs> Um, in a case like that, Alec is coming from a staggeringly small and isolated settlement um, that uh, when I visited, I, I couldn't quite believe how tiny and isolated it is, but it's only 80 people. Um, and it's about an hour away from everything by air. Um, and so as uh, everybody is uh, passing away in front of him, um, you know, what he's left with is this is it, this is all I have. And so that impulse to cherish or to conserve is the only impulse he has left because there's no one else uh, to turn to. Um, so as you um, realize that these people are being taken away from you one by one, um, you both want to comfort yourself the way you do with a comfort object and um, express some kind of love or, or, um, affection for them in the same gesture. Um, and like, you know, most children in this, in a situation like that, um, there's also a sense of, well, what are my options? What else do I have? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, that obviously is a work of imagination. I didn't go through that. Um, but I'm trying to uh, imagine myself into a situation that dire, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jim. One of my favorite parts about how this novel phase six is laid out are the sections that are stating straight fact, uh, which were garnered from you and your assistance research. A fascination to me was the paragraph titled the conversion of dross to gold, partially admittedly because it references a gentleman named John Snow and John Snow is a very popular name in popular culture uh, right now, but also because of John Snow's action, which concerned a water pump. Um, can you tell us what John Snow did here and then about your decision to pepper your novel with these sections of sure. research-based knowledge? Um, the first part of the answer is uh, John Snow is a 19th century uh, uh, sort of proto-epidemiologist who essentially solved the cholera outbreak in London by um, grunt work. And one of the things that made him so inspiring um, was that he did so without um, brilliant deductions. He just did the work involved. And the work in this case was he painstakingly mapped each outbreak of cholera in the city and then tried to spatially relate how they all worked and came to the conclusion that there was one water uh, pump, one well that was, that was probably befouled and, and suggested shutting that down. And when they shut it down, they ended the outbreak. Um, and he's a real inspiration for epidemiologists because I think each, and this was 
something that the epidemiologist that I talked to emphasized. When you confront something like this, like COVID-19 for the first time or something that no one has ever seen before, it's a, you have a terrifying sense of what you don't know. And there's a very powerful sense that you better figure it out soon because if you don't, a lot of people are going to be in danger. Um, and one of the things that's very comforting about the John Snow model is that it's not saying to the epidemiologist, well, I hope you're a genius. What it's saying to the epidemiologist is just do the work. Um, all of that plotting work that involves just taking down the information could pay off in the spectacularly useful way. And so much of epidemiology involves that kind of steady, not very glamorous work. Um, at one point, um, I say in the novel, a line that someone quoted to me that, you know, that the, the symbol for the epidemiologist should be a shoe with a hole in it, you know, uh, a sole of a shoe with a hole in it, essentially, because <laughs> you're doing so much footwork, essentially. Um, so the, the John Snow model is very inspiring for epidemiologists for that reason. Um, in terms of the pleasure it gives the reader, um, you know, when you're trying to decide, design a book like this, on the one hand, um, you want to, the whole point of literature is to give you a sense of the emotions from the inside, right? What's it like to be trying to save a life? What's it like to be in the middle of a pandemic, to be, you know, a, a, one of the people who helps set off a pandemic? Um, but on the other hand, with a book like this, the reader also says, well, what's the story? What's the science? I need to know what's going on. And it's quite frustrating if you uh, limit it to, say, a boy's point of view, and we never know what exactly is going on with the epidemiologists. And so having the um, uh, flexibility and point of view to, to occasionally be omniscient and to occasionally go, well, here's the deal. Here's what happens when a pathogen enters a bloodstream. You know, um, it's a pleasure that readers really look forward to. I think, and and this book um, sort of moves around those options, right? So that sometimes you are um, focused in on one sensibility, and other times you're able to liberate yourself from it. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jim. Um, I want to ask about the first section regarding Valerie Landry. It's a heartbreaking section, which largely takes place in a hospital as all of these teenagers are coming in and dying. Uh, there's a moment when the nurses begin to question whether or not they should quarantine, and it is not a popular question. Uh, and the first thing the nurses do after considering this question is fan out in various directions where they are undoubtedly coming into contact with more people and more things. It is an expertly written scene that shows us just how quickly things can spread and get out of hand just because of the failure to understand and act immediately and decisively. Uh, my question, Jim, is what should the nurses have done here? <laughs> well, um, I think that one of the things you're interested in when you're writing novels is not so much setting down rules for behavior as much as watching human beings behave and registering um, that being human beings, they're going to make the same kinds of decisions and mistakes over and over again. And one of the things that happens um, when you're dealing with um, emergencies in the emergency room all the time um, is you think, oh, I, I know this kind of emergency. I know how this works. Um, and you try to, in, in order to get through your day, you try to keep a fairly even keel and you try to think, we've dealt with this in some ways before. And that means that for the most part, um, you are um, inured to the shocks that are coming along um, and you do have a, a kind of a balance uh, going through your day. On the other hand, you are not ready when something truly unprecedented comes along. Um, you tend to think, one of the analogies that someone mentioned to me um, 
that's standard um, in, in medical diagnosis that I put in the novel is um, somebody said, you know, if it's hoofbeats and you're in Africa, it's probably a zebra, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it may not be a zebra. Um, nine, 90% of the time it will be a zebra and you'll look smart. Uh, but those 10% of the time when it's not a zebra, you're going to get caught by surprise, essentially. Um, and all of us want to go about our lives, as we discovered about the difficulties of quarantine and lockdown, right? Uh, all of us think, yeah, 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 I want to be safe. But come on, I got to see grandma for Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense that we all have that left over from our adolescence, that we're invulnerable, that we're the protagonists, so we can't die. Um, that's that, you know, even anxious people feel a version of that, I think. And so that causes them to sometimes do things where you're like, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, uh, obviously with medical professionals, they'll come, they'll smarten up sooner than we will. Um, but they're human beings too. Absolutely. One would hope that they will smarten up faster than we will, Jim. Um, finally, I want to ask, as you were writing this novel, what is the most surprising thing you learned about the spread of disease that you will carry with you for the rest of your life? What was the most surprising thing? I think probably uh, the most disquieting thing was the uh, revelation that immunity is very rarely permanent. Um, so that even immunity to things like cholera um, eventually wears off. Um, And what we're starting to learn about these pathogens is that some of them, um, the immunity wears off much more quickly than others. And that that process is accelerated by mutation as well, which is everybody is learning right now as well. So, you know, you have that sense of my version of pathogens before I started reading about them was, okay, you get sick, you either die or you get better. If you get better, you don't have to worry about it ever again. Um, and one of the things pandemics teach you is that's not true. Um, you do still have to worry about it. Um, not only do we have to worry about um, pathogens more problematic than COVID-19 coming down the road, we have to worry about COVID-19 coming back in a mutated form, essentially. It's already beginning to do that. Uh, so, you know, one of the analogies that I use in the novel that, that an epidemiologist gave me that I think is a wonderful analogy is if you imagine pathogens as a, a burglar outside your house with a sack of keys and the, bur- and the burglar is just trying every key and, you know, like years go by because the poor burglar's got a giant sack of keys and only one of them is going to open your door. But at some point, he's going to find that key. Um, and that, that I think is the, uh, the operative analogy that I was working with. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. And thank you for writing this. As I was reading it, I found myself thinking about a Pulitzer prize winning novel, like the road or a Nobel prize winning author, like Jose Saramago, specifically the novel blindness, which is just to say that I believe you have a winner on your hands here, Jim. It is an illuminating thought provoking novel for what is hopefully the last days of the COVID-19 era. Listeners, I have been speaking with Jim Shepard, author of Phase 6, which is published by our friends at Alfred A. Knopp. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Have a good day. Once again, I would like to thank Jim Shepard for joining me. Copies of Phase 6 can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month 
favorite local independent bookstore in the provinces. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been